to Mr. Mohammed Baharoun, Director General of the Dubai Consultancy Research and Media Center, Behuth. We are very honored to be your partner for today's online roundtable. Behuth's reputation as one of the United Arab Emirates' leading consultancy research and media organizations is well known in the United States and indeed around the world. We look forward to further collaboration online, inshallah, and one day in person, face to face. To today's online guests, speakers, and presenters, we thank you as well for your time, participation, contributions, and your one-of-a-kind, much-sought-after contribution. To Salim Eddy from Google, Salim, a thank you to Google for providing us with the online meeting platform and YouTube channel technologies for this morning's event titled Life Within Six Feet, The Impact of Social Distancing on Society. Offering a few opening remarks is National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations founding president and CEO, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Dr. Anthony is no stranger to the Emirate of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. His firsthand empirical knowledge actually predates the 1971 UAE independence from British Treaty Relations for External Affairs and Defense. In fact, Dr. Anthony was invited to the UAE as an observer prior to the formation of the United Arab Emirates. A frequent visitor and the only American to have been invited to attend each and every Gulf Cooperation Council, Ministerial and Heads of State Summit since 1981, the first held, of course, in the United Arab Emirates, we have all benefited from Dr. Anthony's voluminous writings on Arabia and the Gulf and his leadership in introducing and connecting American leaders and our next generation of leaders to the UAE, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. Dr. Anthony will provide some welcoming remarks this morning and turn the program over to Mr. Joshua Yaffe, a National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations Scholar-in-Residence and a full-time Arabian Peninsula Specialist at the United States Department of State. Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, uh, Mr. Mohammed Bahroun and your colleagues, Astikai, Ahlan Wasahlan, this is a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to cooperate together at a time when uh, people are not only expected to think out of the box, uh, but in terms of what you're doing, uh, try also to act out of the box. We're in an uncertain era, E-R-A, <laughs> but possibly also E-R-R-O-R, in the sense that uh, the best minds need to be brought to these challenges, these issues. Uh, this is unprecedented, and this requires a degree of humility uh, to, among all of us and to realize that we do little more than stand on the shoulders of those who went before us and uh, provided a uh, foundation upon uh, which we could build. Uh, now, looking at the implications, both short-term and longer-term, of this uh, crisis that we're in uh, puts us into uncharted water. Uh, we need to be clear uh, of what is constant, and what is changing and the implications of both in terms of our people's needs, our people's legitimate needs, our people's legitimate concerns, our people's legitimate interests, and our people's legitimate goals uh, to improve their life and the well-being of all that they love and with whom they live. Uh, in my country, where the government has been uh, drifting and on some days running away from the concept of global uh, cooperation. 
what you are doing with Behuth has been to challenge that and to indicate using facts, using hard evidence, uh, uh, rooted in reality, that we have no choice but to cooperate uh, globally. Uh, when I first lived in Dubai, there were two uh, international class hotels, <laughs> one on the Dubai side of the creek called Airlines Hotel, and the other on the other dearer side of uh, Carlton Hotel. Now, uh, Mark Morozik tells me you have 542 hotels. That looks like a typographical error, but uh, <laughs> this is a hallmark of what you have become in terms of an international transit point for those uh, going to the west from the east and those going to the east uh, from, the, from the west. Uh, tourism, of course, has been hurt massively on a global scale, uh, less so perhaps in Dubai than a country like Tunisia. Uh, after the government as an employer there, uh, it's tourism and hotels uh, that are the backbone of the employment of, of so many uh, Tunisians. And so uh, the implications and the pain and the suffering uh, for many countries and people is enormous and beyond description, especially in the realm of unemployment. And unemployment is related to a person's dignity, uh, her or his pride, her or his confidence that they can address uh, effectively. I don't like to use the word successfully or and failure. Uh, that's too harsh and strong and unnecessary. To be effective is, is acceptable enough. And all of us this morning are exactly trying to accomplish an objective like that. Uh, I would like to turn the program over to Mr. Joshua Yaffe, uh, an analyst uh, for Arabia and the Gulf and the U.S. Uh, Department of State to introduce this morning's players, speakers, addresses. Josh Jaffe. Uh, thank you, Professor Anthony. I really appreciate that. I'm here in my role as a scholar in residence, the National Council in Air, uh, U.S. Arab Relations, and I'm very proud to represent the organization in that regard. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. It's been very kind to me over the years, and I'm glad to be able to return the favor in any way that I can. Uh, thank you for those wonderful remarks, Professor Anthony. They're very, very uh, kind and gracious, especially towards our partners, who I also want to thank. Uh, uh, Mohammed Baharun, our counterpart in Dubai, has been fantastic to work with. And I'll tell you that the, the genesis for this conference, the reason why this came about is, is with him and I talking about all of these webinars and, and teleworked conferences that are going on among the think tanks these days. One thing that's, that's hard to escape is the fact that half of the experience is lost. Uh, when you're not there physically in the room with the participants live right in front of you. Uh, half of the fun of any think tank event is networking, uh, being there with human beings to be able to exchange the business cards, get to know folks, and establish meetings on the sidelines to see what's going on in people's lives and their work. Uh, and that's all lost. And that means what you're left with is the, the pure discussion. And that can be very hit or miss depending on the, the venue, the speakers, the organization. And so Muhammad and I sitting down thinking about that a couple months ago felt that um, if you're going to put on these online events uh, in a think tank mode, 
it has to be so much more effort and thought and care put into them than you would have done prior to the coronavirus. Speakers have to be more carefully chosen and topics more carefully prepared, uh, questions presented in a more thoughtful, targeted way, uh, because really everything stands on the discussion at this point when you're online. Uh, and hence, that led us to the topic of the day, as you see from the title, Life Within Six Feet. Again, that was Muhammad's idea for the title. I give him full credit for it. Uh, and, and it is an expression of the experience we are all in, uh, but even as think tanks and think tanks dealing with the Middle East. Uh, how do you not only uh, take what you were doing before and shift it online, but how do you take advantage of the moment to do things new, to do things better, to expand in ways you might not otherwise have done before? Uh, this is really a moment in which certain organizations are going to fall behind and certain ones are going to come out ahead based on their creativity. Um, and that's a challenge for all of us because none, none of us know how long this will go on or what the future holds or how long it will last or what society is going to expect from us coming out of it. And really, those are the biggest questions, and we'll get to those towards the end. And for that purpose, we're very lucky to have Dr. Anita Blanchard with us, who is a social psychologist who can address some of these, these uh, perspectives from an academic perspective. Uh, but before we get to all of that, I want to start it out uh, going down the list of our speakers as presented. And that means we're going to have a bit of a technology focus at the beginning. So first up, I'd like to introduce Rafik Maki. Uh, Rafik is head of technology and a fellow at Mubadala Ventures. Previously, he was the executive director of planning at the Abu Dhabi Education Council. He is vice president for research at Mazdar Institute of Science Technology. Uh, he was involved in a number of universities, including UAE University, and was involved with Global Foundries, which is a fantastic company here in uh, uh, America. Uh, doing a, a great industrial work. Uh, so for uh, Mr. Rafiq, um, uh, and we welcome any comments or thoughts that you may have, but I'd also like to open it up with you to discuss a bit of corporate culture. Uh, are we seeing a shift in corporate culture? Are we seeing a stronger emphasis on chief technology officers? And how's that impacting corporate decision making? Uh, so first, let's turn it over to Rafiq and, and see uh, what some of your thoughts are. Mr. Rafiq. Thank you, uh, Joshua. <clears throat> we are uh, certainly facing the, uh, the crisis of the century. I think there's no doubt uh, about that today. Uh, its impact on our society has been uh, tremendous. Uh, it has reached uh, nearly every city, uh, every village, every neighborhood, uh, just about every corner on the planet. And social distancing uh, the topic at hand has affected just about every aspect of our life. Uh, the way we work, the way we eat, the way we shop, entertainment, uh, education, uh, travel, uh, manufacturing, uh, and of course, the way we socialize. And if you look at re recent uh, uh, reports on the economic impact uh, and specifically the impact on jobs, it, they're really frightening. There's been a uh, historic contraction of per capita income globally. And it's been, uh, Joshua, the largest of its kind since 1870. Uh, there's been tremendous losses in, in work hours. And, and the United Nations estimates that the, these losses in, in work hours are the equivalent of some 300 million full-time jobs globally for 2020. Those are really, really amazing, uh, amazingly bad uh, statistics. 
some sectors of the economy have been devastated and, 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 and some of those may not recover. But in all this darkness, and as always, there's always a silver lining here. And history has taught us that almost always humanity emerges from such crises stronger, uh, smarter, uh, richer. Uh, give you an example, the Spanish flu of 1918, by some estimates, infected nearly a quarter of the entire global population. And by some estimates, killed up to 50 million people. But many don't know that it actually shaped the future of medicine in a number of ways. One of which is that it's subs the substantial advancement of the field of epidemiology, which has saved countless of lives over the next hundred years and to this day. And today, thanks to social distancing, some sectors of the economy are actually thriving. Uh, these would include offline services, such as food delivery, uh, online shopping, uh, and all the logistics associated uh, with that. Uh, home and consumer goods are doing very well. Uh, software as a service is doing very well. Gaming is doing extraordinarily well. Digital media, work from home technology, and of course, all the supporting infrastructure for that. So data centers, the cloud, and the associated services uh, uh, there. And I'd like to give two examples, uh, uh, Joshua, on technology that's impacting us uh, uh, in, in, in some positive ways today. So let's start with video. You know, this is the medium we're on uh, uh, today. So it's estimated that video will consume 1.9 zettabytes, that's a lot of bytes, uh, this year, 2020. That's up 12% from 2019. And what does that mean, that 12%? That's an extra 200 billion hours of video calls or movie viewing. An extra 200 billion hours. So we normally think of video as a service, but there's major infrastructure behind all of it and, and benefiting from it. The com communications industry and all of its components from network providers to cloud systems to mobile apps and ICT security. I mean, this is a massive area of the economy and it's accelerating 5G deployment and research towards 6G uh, in the future. It might also impact legislation in terms of internet access. Internet access uh, is becoming a right, uh, especially in this environment. It's not just a privilege today. It's actually becoming a right. It's an essential uh, uh, thing that, that humanity needs today. So video is not just a service, but it's becoming an enabler of, of innovation. And it's expected to drive new experiences, like new shopping experiences, uh, new types of apps, uh, live streaming promotions, and augmented uh, uh, reality. Uh, the other example I want to give is in the area of therapeutics. And I want to do that because uh, we are living in amazing times in terms of technology and its impact on our lives and its impact today under COVID. So just consider, just consider how fast scientists were able to sequence the virus that causes COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I mean, within a few weeks, we knew the DNA composition of the virus, how many DNA base pairs it has, we knew the proteins it uses to latch onto our cells and invade our cells and go inside of our cells and, and uh, issue a program that orders our cells to duplicate uh, uh, the virus. 
And all this thanks to next generation DNA sequencing and gene editing technology. And scientists are using these, especially uh, CRISPR, which is the preeminent uh, gene editing technology today, and machine learning to help identify drugs that can interfere in this process and prevent the virus from attaching to ourselves. So we're using machine learning to understand the composition of these proteins and how we can actually develop uh, uh, therapeutics that can uh, interfere with these uh, uh, proteins and prevent uh, uh, a specific protein that is associated with uh, SARS-CoV-2 from attaching to a specific protein uh, in our cells. Amazing technology we have, we have today. We're talking about a vaccine in a year to 18 months. Uh, this, this would be unbelievable. And normally when you talk about a vaccine, you talk about it in terms of 10 years or 15, uh, 15 years. So in, in many ways, the pandemic is actually accelerating the R&D cycle to develop not just therapies for COVID, but also uh, the fight on tough diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's, because some of the same innovation that's going into uh, therapeutics for COVID uh, can be used to fight other diseases. And machine learning is playing a key role uh, here as a first line of defense also uh, uh, for, for the pandemic. Uh, uh, hospitals are scanning faces to check temperatures. Of course, uh, you've all heard about uh, the use of uh, contact tra uh, tracing apps. Uh, and there's other interesting applications. And one of my favorite applications of machine learning here is uh, uh, a project by Carnegie Mellon University. Um, uh, Carnegie Mellon University is actually analyzing voice and trying to detect COVID by analyzing people's voices. In fact, uh, people listening to this webcast can go online to the CMU uh, website and participate in this study by simply recording, uh, simply recording your voice. So to, to uh, uh, cap off here my, my introductory uh, uh, comments, uh, COVID has had a disproportionate impact uh, it's, uh, on uh, different sectors of the economy uh, and the workforce. Uh, uh, but if anything, uh, Joshua, we humans are very resilient. Uh, we suffer, yes, but we always innovate, we adapt, and eventually we'll beat this thing. There's no question in my mind. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Rafik. And I love looking in the background where you are because you've got a book there with a picture of Sheikh Zayed on the back. And oh, he was, yeah, Sheikh Zayed was certainly a man who embraced technology, uh, moving to Abu Dhabi when there was nothing there and, and helping to build that place from the ground up. Um, I think he would definitely approve of this topic today. So with that, I want to go to uh, our guest, Nasser Sheikh. Nasser, it's wonderful to have you with us. Nasser Sheikh is uh, the chairman of Emirates National Holdings. In the past, he's been director general of the Dubai Department of Finance, head of the finance and the executive office of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, and vice chairman of the National Bonds Corporation, among member of board of, of numerous uh, entities and corporations. He's had a very storied career uh, in finance in Dubai uh, at the top of that mountain. And um, I want to turn it to Nasser, and I want to ask you a similar question, Nasser, about corporate culture today. Are we seeing a shift in the corporate culture to a stronger emphasis on technology and a stronger role for chief technology officers? And what does that mean for long-term investment strategies? Nasser? Thank you, Joshua. I mean, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, 
National, uh, the National Council of U.S. and Arab Relations and Bahut for having me among this, um, you know, distinguished group of minds, great minds, uh, if I may say. Um, well, I mean, I, I think I think we've, you know, everyone has been talking a lot about, you know, what what being what the world has been going through over the past um, four months. Um, and and I, th I think basically what happened, we were all caught off guard, you know. Um, when I look at impact, of course, I mean, I do not want to go, you know, global and so on. I would like to focus on the story from the GCC, the story from the United Arab Emirates. But when, when, I, when I look at the impact over here, uh, we basically had no choice. You know, if I look at a city like Dubai, all of a sudden, I mean, a city like Dubai, which, which houses the world's busiest airport, when you look at, you know, international visitors, uh, fourth most visited city on earth, all of a sudden, the engine is shut, you know. And um, for, you know, for three weeks, we had 24-hour, uh, you know, 24-7 curfews. So, I mean, we, you know, we like, we like, to look uh, to you know to talk I mean, talk about technology and so on we, we, you know we'd like to talk about uh, you know um, disruptive innovations but but here we had you know a disruptor that just caught us off guard and it you know it redefined the uh, our lives so I mean whatever angle you look at it from um, we were not prepared um, w you know. And and you you see you see the experiences from one one country to the other and so on, and I think the first the first couple of months or three months were basically a period of learning. You know, we're facing um, an enemy that we do not know anything about. You know, and the safest thing was just to shut down completely. And when I when I say shut down, I mean you talk about commerce, you talk about uh, uh, shutting. Uh, shutting life, you know, shutting down life as as we know it. So even kids, you know, were not go able going to, uh, uh, were not uh, able to go to schools. Uh, people were not able to report to work. I mean, so all that changes. It was, it was, you know, it took it took a while for us to absorb that hit. And I think I think you know today we're in a position we where we know a bit more about it. Uh, we don't we don't claim that the danger is over. You know the enemy is still out there. You know maneuvering, um, looking for a comeback maybe. But you know we we feel a bit better that you know today we're better prepared to deal with it. So you know looking at corporates, uh, I, I I think you know one of one of the first things that every single corporate that you know I'm associated with or I know of. I mean one of the first things that they had to think about is business continuity you know and 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 this is where technology was very important you know uh, because technology enabled all of us as companies as um, education providers um, I mean it, it enabled us I mean just to carry on with our lives even you know in uh, in, a co in a completely different format um, you know where where do we go, where do we go from here? I, I think you know as we go along in the discussion. I mean we, we will be focused focusing on you know certain angles, but when it comes to corporates, I mean uh, 
I think, you know, are CTOs the most important? You know, maybe in month one, month two, CTOs were the most important, but I think, you know, as we go along, I think the CFOs are becoming more important, you know? Um, businesses, I mean, with businesses, I mean, if they cannot uh, remain in existence, you know, <laughs> there is no point of technology. I mean, no one can revive that. So I think, you know, I, I think it's a bit, a bit more complex than that. And I, th I think as we go along in the discussion, um, I mean, we will be covering more angles. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Nasser. We appreciate that. Next, we'd like to turn to Dr. Omar Al-Baidi. So, Dr. Omar is Director of Studies and Research at Derasat, which is based in Bahrain. It's the Center for Strategic International and Energy Studies. He did his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. And Dr. Omar, I'd like to turn the same question over to you, but in a slightly different uh, aspect. How does this shift toward tech-based social interactions, how is that changing strategy for how governments manage economies uh, and how, how uh, 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 economies have to shift. Um, uh, what long-term implications do you see from this tech uh, shift that we all are taking right now? Dr. Omar? Uh, so first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to participate today. Um, I think that one uh, important implication of the shift to tech is that we're going to have a potentially very different uh, real estate property value property curve value curve uh, in cities and a potential big urban reorganization so to elaborate uh, you know since the uh, you know urban revolution started a few hundred years ago we've had city centers where real estate values are very high uh, because people need to be close to whatever it is they want entertainment work and that's a pretty stable and, and, and universal uh, feature of property markets. Um, if the transition to uh, you know, remote working, both in the government and in the private sector, continues, uh, and coupled with people preferring you know, remote entertainment and not needing to go to movie theaters, not needing to go to restaurants, not needing to go to museums, and so on and so forth, then the property prices, uh, well, the, whole, the whole configuration of cities might need to change. Uh, and this could be very disruptive to all sorts of social uh, institutions that are based on this existing relationship between land and property ownership and, and, and wealth and, and social station. So, uh, you know, in the near term, this is not something which is going to have an impact because this will have to be something that evolves over time. But when we're talking about 30 and 40 years horizons, especially with uh, you know, the sustainable development agenda and uh, new urban agenda from the United Nations, uh, we can see a fundamental transformation in the way cities are, are done, uh, and, and with it, you know, the social strata and the relationships between different classes. Uh, uh, and that's potentially a good thing, potentially a bad thing. I guess environmentally, it definitely is a potentially a good thing because it decreases the need for some of the uh, you know, for some of the commuting and some of the heavy pressure on, on certain types of infrastructure, and it affords us greater flexibility in how we design cities. Uh, probably means lower security threats from having so many important installations in, in one place. So that probably is a less of a headache for the government. But as I say, so many of our social interactions are based on this quite you know stable model of property prices. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how that evolves. I don't think anybody really has a good sense 
of which way it's headed. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. And I love what you say, and I want to be able to come back to it later, that we're not just seeing it, it, we're not just seeing a shift in how society interacts. We may also be seeing a shift in how social classes interact uh, because of the way that people uh, uh, shape their lives within cities and how cities will be transformed. If you can turn off your microphone for a minute, Dr. Omar, we're going to move on to uh, Dr. Anita. Dr. Anita Blanchard, we're very grateful to have you here with us. She is Associate Professor of Psychology and Organizational Science in the Department of Psychology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's author of numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, all dealing with technology and social behavior, more than I can possibly uh, enumerate here. And importantly, at UNCC, she's uh, involved in the Virtual Identity Community and Entitativity Lab, uh, which is a interdisciplinary research team exploring how people come together in, in person and online to identify as groups and what that means to identify as groups. I'd like to ask Dr. Anita, if I can, uh, how does the current extended period of social distancing impact the formation of social capital? And and you can take that in any direction that you, that you like, Dr. Anita, but if I can turn it over to you, that'd be great. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much for um, having me be a part of this. This is uh, an amazing experience for an academic to actually get to talk to people who are making real decisions and, and doing this. So I, I want to uh, give you information that is useful for you um, from the research that we know. So a couple of things. I've been studying online groups and virtual communities for over 25 years. And um, I have a lot of thoughts and hopefully some information to share with you. But Three things I want you to think about in, um, in analyzing and looking forward of how we can make things as successful as possible, both for organizations, for work, as well as for, um, for society. So the three things to think about, first, humans have an innate need for belonging. We need to be part of groups. And the one thing that concerns me most about what's happening in the pandemic is people becoming isolated from their groups at work, which are very meaningful. I agree with, um, I think Mr. Um, Mr. Anthony said that, groups at work as well as groups in our society. So we need to belong to groups and that's as important a psychological need as eating is for a biological need. So the need for belonging is very important. So we need to facilitate, make policies in society and in organizations that help people belong. The other part I want to talk about is when we think about groups, you know, so that's what they want to belong to groups. What does it mean to be a group? And um, there's a very key uh, term, a key concept in research in social psychology and organizational psychology that I want to share with you and give you an idea about so that you can use it in making your own ideas. It's a very fancy word. It's called intertativity. And in fact, because I'm a professor, I made I made a spreadsheet for you. <laughs> so it's intuitivity, and I have uh, two things to provide it to you. So the reason it's a fancy word is because it actually means the groupiness of a group. Okay, I'm gonna put that back. I'll put that back up in a second. It means the groupiness of a group. So I want you to imagine driving by a bus stop and seeing people waiting to take a bus, and they are probably not looking at each other, they're on their phones. They're facing the same way. They're not talking. You might say to yourself, 
look at that group of people at the bus, but it's not really that much of a group. Now consider those same people at a coffee shop sitting around a table together, and this is pre-pandemic imagination, right? Sitting around a table together, sharing conversations, coffee, maybe even sharing food. That's very much of a group of people. So intuitivity, the difference here, is our variability between the bus stop and the coffee shop, okay? And you can think about looking at it. You can also imagine yourself waiting for the people at, at the bus stop or the coffee shop. The reason that is key is people do not become part of the group until some switch in their head goes above a certain level of intuitivity. They have to think this is a group before they start participating, interacting, um, feeling attachments, feeling uh, trying to create norms of behavior before they have satisfaction, commitment, before they belong and it's important to them. So we have to think when we're looking at groups online, particularly, how do we increase the intuitivity of that so that we have positive work experiences, so that we have positive experiences at social capital. The reason this is important for social capital is we've got to make sure people's online groups interact with their face-to-face -face groups. And that's a key thing we need to worry about. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. My children play road, Roblox. It's some kind of weird computer game. They, I, don't, I didn't let them play it beforehand until I found out they were playing it after the pandemic with their friends. I'm like, this is fantastic social capital. I honestly changed my, my ideas about what they could do because they were interacting with a people face-to-face -face normally that they would do online. So I'm going to, I hope I, we can have conversations where I can bring back intuitivity for online meetings, for online groups, for how we can encourage that in social capital and other things. But um, those are the things I really want uh, to, to help, help you all understand. Thank you very much. I'm glad. Thank you so much, Josh, for having me here. Well, okay, and, and I want to be able to come back to that later because because what Anita is raising is a critical question for us. Uh, if if there's a, an essential a need for belonging in groups that's essential to humanity, uh, and uh, there's a certain level that we reach uh, where we reach a critical mass of feeling that we belong, and at which point you can say that we're all part of a collective endeavor and we're all achieving certain goals together, whether it be in the boardroom or whether it be in the government, uh, then how do, do the text tech-based interactions that we're all experiencing raise that bar uh, towards uh, at which point we can all feel that we're taking part and, and shaping something together. But let's come back to that in a minute. Let's go first to Salim. Uh, Salim Ede, uh, thank you for joining us so much, Salim. You are uh, Director of Public Policy and Government Relations at Google Middle East and North Africa. Uh, previously, he was the Vice President for Government Relations at SAP. And before that, he worked with Cisco Systems, IBM, Hewlett Packard, a number of companies. Uh, Salim, I'd like to turn to you. And in a, in a slightly related question, I'd like to ask, based on your observations of working with companies and advising companies and governments on, on uh, what products Google offers and how to, to improve their uh, technology base and use technology better, what do you witness in terms of, of how 
technology is helping corporations to bring teams together in synergy. Do they lose any of that synergy when uh, corporate functions have to go online? Do groups in the workplace, in the, the experiences that you have, are they, are they uh, 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 losing anything by having to transfer all of their interactions onto web-based platforms, or are they being enhanced in, in other ways? Salim, can I turn it over to you? Sure. Uh, thank you, Joshua. And it's a real pleasure to be here today with, uh, uh, with distinguished uh, speakers. Um, so there is this contradiction when in, with technology that um, we're, we're, uh, we are promoters of disruption, right? Uh, I think Professor Anthony talked about uncharted territories and uncertain times. So this is, uh, this is when we thrive and that's when we prosper and then when we add value to, to the community. <clears throat> and uh, I must say um, that the, the rate of innovation uh, actually uh, has always been fast and we always were saying we would keep learning all the time. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe... You know, with with the COVID situation, some people felt that time has stopped. Actually, it has not. We all know uh, innovation is accelerating, and uh, uh, what's uh, so? I'm not I'm not saying something you don't know that uh, uh, the rate of innovation is accelerating. But what's really interesting, and maybe this is first observation, is that the rate of adoption of technology has increased tremendously. So. You know, for the digitizers in the uh, on the panel or in the audience, uh, we've been advocate of uh, embracing technology for so many years, and then all of a sudden, because of the situation we're in, uh, that was totally caught us off guard. I agree with uh, with you, Mr. Uh, Nasser. Uh, we we sort of were forced to actually uh, embrace technology, so the rate of adoption has increased, but you should also be aware that the rate of innovation has not stopped. So it, it's, 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 uh, when we come out of this, there'll be so many innovations that actually people have accepted and embraced and digested, integrated in their day-to-day in -day life. So, uh, so for the digitizers and uh, guilty as charged, I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, we sort of, um, I, I would say with the pinch of salt, this is the, the revenge of the of the nerds of the digitizers. Twenty years later, you know, people are embracing this uh, the, the technology. Like, you know, uh, what we're doing right now. Just imagine this uh, and the brick and mortar uh, economy to have maybe cost ten times more and and took uh, uh, five times more time to get together uh, to get all the distinguished speakers. Uh, uh, with with the, with the immense uh, experience uh, they have in in one room, so uh, digitization is there to stay, and it's it's really accelerating. Um, one thing, and I really like uh, Dr. Blacher Anita, what you said, uh, and I'm, I'll, I'll try to say it antitativity, right? <laughs> so. so uh, you know, in my world, we've, we've been, you know, I've been responsible for things like education for some time in, in previous lives, and, and people were obsessed with content. You know, every, it's all about the content. Actually, uh, uh, they, they sort of got it a little bit wrong. It's about collaboration, and collaboration is as important, if not more. And if we, we understood something from this, 
crisis that the level of collaboration somehow has increased. Uh, and, and, and we understood that uh, creating a group with a purpose, I guess having a purpose helps sometimes to create a group uh, and uh, create social capital, is actually has increased, whether it's in, 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 in the corporate uh, uh, sphere or in the social sphere. So, um, so uh, collaboration actually uh, has risen to the level of content, even I would say it beats content uh, in more than one way. So these are um, the three things that I would uh, I would uh, uh, I would retain that you know is more and more innovation and adoption of innovation digitization is there and also collaboration is here to stay. The the uh, the one thing is uh, there is no going back after this. Uh, we're gonna emerge out of this in what we uh, we would. You could call a blended environment, right? So, 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 so everybody taking a, a car and going to the same place to to sit down in front of a teacher or a professor. Uh, maybe this will change. Maybe there will be a blended learning um, uh, model that emerges that's more efficient, more personalized, and and yields better results without taking away the the collaborative part and. The, the, the the group uh, uh, the group and the interaction so so and you know I want to say something about the Middle East and North Africa region we have half a billion people the rate of uh, internet penetration is about sixty percent uh, I, I, I so which means we, we're looking at uh, uh, three hundred million uh, people who actually use the internet every day they, they they for for various reasons I would I would submit to you that by the end of the COVID, uh, and if we take this uh, statistics at the end of, uh, of this year, uh, that percentage would have increased, increased tremendously. And the Middle East and North Africa region is special uh, because we say the MENA region grows younger every day because the under 25 are more than 50%. And going back to the major issue of unemployment that Rafi spoke about and uh, Dr. Anthony also spoke about this is going to be so painful. It used to be painful before COVID. So the MENA region suffers from endemic unemployment and the average is much higher than anywhere else in the world. What's really uh, uh, cause for concern is that uh, the, 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 the divide that exists, the gender divide. So women uh, uh, unemployment is, is higher, is one and a half times the average. And the youth unemployment is double the average. So that was pre-COVID. Now, what will happen after that is like no less, nothing short of a tsunami. And uh, the, the silver lining, though, is in all this is that um, there will be um, uh, there will be things like uh, that will come to help, like technology. Uh, of course, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, but I would say uh, the cloud, the cloud technology is here to stay, and um, and um, and there are uh, industries that will be transformed. And there's a little bit of concern here because we, especially in the MENA region, we built industries on assumptions that were, I would say, mid 20th centuries assumptions. Nothing wrong with that, you know. And a lot of countries actually accelerated. Definitely, United Arab Emirates is one of them. However, there is a risk that there is a disruption due to what's happening 
and not all these industries will survive. They need to change and, and change like fundamentally to, to be able to, to survive. Talking about, uh, uh, of course, education, healthcare, you know, now uh, uh, a lot of uh, medical uh, advice is done uh, through telemedicine, e-commerce, commerce will change, of course, and uh, cashless economies, uh, you know, a dream would be to have cashless economies in some countries. Uh, just imagine the, 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 the efficiencies it will bring and the, and the fact that you'll be able to control better taxes and, uh, and revenues. Uh, so all these are silver lining, very much possible, and this acceleration that's happening is uh, will will actually um, uh, will actually help us get there. There are definitely challenges. We talked about unemployment. We talked about the digital divide that still exists. We talk also about the cost of a connection that's still very high in our in our region. And really, if we, you know, uh, and I sincerely hope that in the United Arab Emirates. I've been here for the last 20 years. I love the place. That voice over IP will stay open after after COVID. Um, thank you. Back to you, Joshua. Thank you, Samim. I appreciate it. And I want to highlight the first thing that you said, the rate of adoption of technology is accelerating. Uh, it's Because when we usually think about Silicon Valley and we think about high tech, it's usually on the supply side. We think about the rate of innovation. We don't usually think about the rate of adoption of technology. We don't usually think about the demand side. Uh, we usually have this concept of uh, uh, high tech flows from the minds of Silicon Valley whiz kids into the arms of all of us mere mortals here on earth. But you're right that in the current situation, the rate of uh, that people are taking on board technology is moving at such a high, fast pace it makes you wonder uh, to what extent these big corporations can even keep up with the demand that's coming from the public, right? And of course, the, there's a market, so it'll it'll shift over time and these things will adjust. But it's just an unusual moment that we live in where people are adopting technology as fast as anyone can produce it because that's what we have. But what but I want to do... Yeah, go on, Celine. I just want to say on this point that people are innovating themselves, so the users are empowered with the new technologies, you know, with the with the mobile and and other uh, and and video was mentioned so important, right? It empowers people, uh, and they will innovate. It's not only the the the, the, the remit of of uh, uh, of tech uh, tech companies to innovate. People are innovating every single day. Okay, excellent. So if you can go ahead and mute, I'm going to turn it back to Rafik Maki. Uh, Mr. Rafik, can we talk about, from your perspective, how does a, an institution develop uh, a, an investment uh, strategy in the current environment? There's so many uncertainties. There's so many unknowns. I, we don't need to know specific ideas of investment of what's going on, but just in general, what is a process that anyone can go through to kind of level-headedly and rationally develop uh, a way forward for long-term investment and long-term strategy uh, with so many uncertainties in front of us? Rafiq? Yeah, uh, Joshua, I'll be glad to give you ideas uh, of investment too. So, so uh, uh, look, I mean, the, the, uh, whenever the future is, is, is uh, this unclear, uh, the investment community is uh, cautious. But opportunistic still, right? So, so the impact of, of COVID on investment has been varied. So some areas have been devastated. 
uh, some areas, for example, like uh, uh, fintech uh, uh, took a hit, but other areas of investment are doing pretty good. Uh, for example, uh, funding of consumer product startups. And I'm, I'm going to limit my comments to funding startups because that's uh, what we do here at Mubadala Ventures out of uh, San Francisco. Uh, so funding of consumer products uh, has gone up 36% quarter on quarter. So first quarter of 2020 over first quarter of uh, 2019, right? Uh, why? Well, because it's doing very well. Uh, so some th uh, $3 billion uh, in startup funding has been, has been spent on uh, consumer products. So what does that include? Include uh, food and beverage, uh, uh, gaming, uh, things like home fitness, uh, home goods. Uh, uh, so that area is, is, is doing well. Now, you asked me about uh, a strategy. So the strategy is uh, to be opportunistic, uh, but also the strategy is to uh, reinvest in, in, in our own companies that we've already invested in. And, and, and why, why would we do that? Because these are tough times and some startups might not survive these tough, uh, these, uh, tough times. So what, what we try to do is uh, pick out the startups uh, that have uh, the most uh, uh, experience in terms of dealing and managing uh, a crisis. So we look to the leadership of the startups, we look to the founders uh, and their experience in, in managing uh, a crisis. And we try to support uh, these, uh, uh, these startups uh, uh, to bridge their liquidity needs uh, during these uh, tough times. So what we'd like to do is first and foremost is maintain uh, the health of the startups we've already invested in. So that's our first priority. And our second priority is to uh, invest opportunistically. Now, uh, investment in general has affected the startup uh, world, uh, as I said, differently depending on area, but also differently depending on the stage of the startup. So those of you familiar with the startup world, you know that, that startups uh, initially, they, they uh, request seed funding uh, when they're first formed, and then they go through different rounds, round A, a couple of years later, round B, a couple of years after that, and, and so on. Uh, so the, the impact on the, on, uh, of funding on, on startups has varied by stage. Uh, the most hit have been very early stage seed funding type startups. So if you're just starting out, it's been very difficult to attract uh, funding. Uh, but if you're doing Series C or Series D, you've, you've established yourself, you're in the right area, you're more likely to attract uh, uh, funding. So back to your question, Joshua, our first priority is to ensure that our current startups make it through COVID. Nobody knows how this thing is, turning, is going to turn out. Uh, COVID, uh, uh, this, this virus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, is a very, very nasty virus. We, we haven't experienced in our lifetime anything uh, similar to this. It's very sticky. You know, we all thought it will be gone by June, July, or at least diminished. We are still in the first wave. You know, people are talking about the second wave. They're wrong. We're still in the first wave. We, we haven't gotten over the first wave. And it could be 2022 before we get uh, uh, get over this. We don't know. So we're going to be cautious, we're going to be opportunistic, and we're going to maintain a support of our present startups. And I think Salim wanted to, uh, to add something. 
I just, uh, because it's such a fascinating subject, startups, uh, uh, Rafi, it's, it's really so important also for the region. Uh, I just want to add a little bit, if, if you don't mind, there is startup and there is also scale up, if I may use this term, although it's not really very accurate, but the existing number of small and medium-sized enterprises in the Middle East and North Africa region, there are millions of them. So these guys are suffocating. They are like dying right now as we speak because of COVID. If, if we can give, provide them with the right help to digitize, to actually move their business online, if you're selling uh, car, you know, auto spare parts and you, you, you sort of inherited this from your family and you want to move online, they, they don't know how to do it. So we should be somehow uh, cooperating government funds, uh, private sector, uh, creating this, this cooperation to actually address uh, f- full respect for the startup, and they are they are extremely promising in the region, and we we saw we saw some really fantastic successes. But really, what's pressing now are, is the scaling up of the existing SMEs, and precisely to digitize them and help them get online. Because if you're not online, you don't you don't have a life. You you don't have clients anymore, right? And fully agree, Salim. Fully agree with that uh, assessment. And in fact. You know, uh, you, you said earlier that uh, uh, the uh, adoption rate is, is increasing. Uh, in the investment world and in, in here in the Silicon Valley, in the tech world, uh, we think of COVID as an accelerator of innovation and a catalyst uh, to move innovation uh, forward in, in, certain, in certain areas. So uh, there is a, a positive aspect to uh, COVID and uh, technology will help us uh, get over it. And technology will help those companies that you're talking about. Okay, if I can, I'd like to bring it back to Nasser Sheikh. Nasser, can I ask you, have we seen a complete retreat from globalization in terms of globalized supply chains and overseas outsourcing? Uh, that's what people were talking about at the very beginning of the COVID outbreak. But you don't hear as, as much of that talk now that everything needs to be nativized. Do you think that we could be uh, potentially in a situation where we see a different version of globalization, either a year from now or two years from now, once we figure out vaccines and how to use them uh, effectively? Uh, what does globalization look like moving forward? Nasser? Well, that's, that's an important question, but uh, if, I, if you allow me, I'll d- I just need to address a few points that were discussed. Unfortunately, I don't have these... Um, I don't have these... Uh, you know, I cannot amuse amuse you with these uh, buzzwords like Dr. Anita. I don't have any. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, technology. I appreciate, you know, what the gentlemen have been say, uh, have been saying. But I don't think technology will drive change. Okay, I think the technology. Uh, I mean, I think companies like Google and you know other big tech companies. I mean, they can do a lot of wonderful things, but if there is no consumer and demand for that, you know, service or product, you know, uh, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, and I don't think tech will drive it, but tech will enable, or, you know, as long as there is a need for something. If I look, if I look at education, for example, I, I mean, here, here, I mean, our experience in the UAE for the past two decades, you know, we've been, uh, e-government was nice to have. And there were, there were these initiatives, you know, as we went along for over the past 20 years. And, and uh, even in recent months, I mean, uh, government had, uh, you know, one day where they report to work and they do 
uh, I think they call it, uh, you know, government without paperless government. So at least one day in a month, they have to uh, process all applications, everything, but without, you know, any papers in place. And they cannot, you know, receive any people. And I think, I think th those experiences enabled us as a country here to adapt quickly, okay? Because we had that infrastructure in place. But I think, you know, we tend to forget one thing. I mean, technology, I mean, it's, it's important to have it and so on. But as long, I mean, policymakers are having trouble with that too. You know, and I think I think Mr. Salim, I mean, he, he mentioned, you know, our our, um, you know, um, telecom uh, regulator, you know, with all these platforms available, you know, in the world, you know, such such as the one that we're using right now, you know, in the OAE, video conferencing was not allowed until the pandemic, you know, but since we went into the pandemic, you know, video conference, uh, video conferencing was so important. I mean, to enable P, uh, students to keep on, you know, uh, going to school, you know, in the virtual world, uh, it enabled government to operate and, and so on. So I think policymakers are still struggling with that because even even when when you know companies come up with these beautiful apps like contact tracing and so on, we still have some concerns coming on uh, privacy. You know, so I think you know we. It's an ongoing process. I mean, let's not fool ourselves and, th and think that, you know, we figured everything out. You know, I, I think it's an, it's an ongoing process. Um, I mean, the, uh, so, I mean, it, it coming back to globalization. I think globalization, of course, I mean, there was, there was a lot of talk when, when this started. And I think the, you know, the, um, yeah, the U.S.-China tug of war did not help, you know, but but I think you know being caught off guard. I think no country in the world wants to be caught off guard again. Okay, so I think when it comes to certain sectors, you know, and certain you know products, uh, I think there there should always be a plan B. Okay, so I think what we will see. I, I don't think I mean we will have a deglobalized world. We will still have a, uh, you know a globalized world, but we'll have a new version of it. So, uh, you know, when when the pandemic started in China, everyone in the world was really worried because manufacturing lines, I mean, were just stopped, you know, and a simple Apple store in Dubai, you know, in one of the malls here, had the concern that if manufacturing does not restart, they will be out of stock within a month. So I don't I don't think anyone wants to be uh, in that position anymore. I think you know as uh, the discussion is going more into a China plus one strategy. So even if you depend on China, you still have to have a plan B, be it in you know Indonesia, Vietnam, any anywhere else. So we'll still be globalized. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Joshua, can I, uh... yeah, yeah, I mean I. May I just address that? Yeah. Go ahead, Rafiq, just quickly, and then we're going to go to Omar. Rafiq? Yeah. So, so I want to disagree with my colleague Nasser on uh, technology and its uh, uh, effect on change. I think uh, that technology is uh, uh, one of the uh, science and technology uh, uh, have been one of the greatest engines of change, and they affect uh, uh, behavior enormously. Just, just think of. Uh, uh, digital social media and how that has altered uh, uh, social behavior. And I don't need to go back to uh, electricity and, and, and uh, uh, 
all the great technologies that uh, have enabled the creation of millions of jobs and, and have impacted economies and, and wealth distribution throughout the world. Uh, to me, uh, technology and science together uh, uh, impact uh, behavior tremendously. Okay, I want to go to Omar. Omar, do you want to jump in on any of these? Yes, just your question regarding the supply chains. So uh, initially, as you mentioned, there was a flurry of claims that production is going to be relocalized and international supply chains are going to be decoupled. Uh, but actually, there was a recent paper published, I forget the names of the authors, uh, or circulated as it among the academic economics community, looking at this possibility. And the conclusion was that there's not really much point in relocalizing production if you're going to have to have, to have lockdowns domestically as well. Uh, so, you know, for example, if, if you're importing in Florida from California and you've got a lockdown within the US, does it make a difference if you're getting it from California, if you're getting it from China? You still can't, you can't still move goods around. Uh, now, a caveat uh, uh, is that some countries uh, are believed to be managed more poorly, um, uh, and in that sense, they're more susceptible to an outbreak in the first place. Uh, uh, in that sense, China is potentially in trouble because its lack of transparency in, in, in how it's dealt with the crisis uh, has made people think that maybe it's not uh, 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 very good at dealing with these kind of things, despite you know, some of the public relations efforts it's, it's, uh, it's expended since then. Um, but regardless of the economic benefits of relocalizing production, supposing it is, whether it's better or worse, the reality is that there are populist and mercantilist uh, uh, tendencies in society at the moment, and it's very likely that you know politicians who subscribe to mercantilist or populist views are going to seize the opportunity to relocalize production, regardless of whether it's actually you know uh, uh, economically uh, justifiable, um, uh, because people believe that it's the right thing to do, regardless of whether it is the right thing to do or not. Um, However, we will see if they're willing to pay higher prices. You know, we've had for the last 30, 40 years the good price of all consumer goods has been falling, 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 and falling because of all this globalization. Are people going to be happy paying higher prices? I don't know. We'll have to see when they face them. And uh, a final point I'd add to that is, you know, one question we haven't had answered by epidemiologists and, uh, and a variety of health, public health experts is, what is the likelihood of future pandemics? You know, so you can't really answer this supply chain question without knowing. Uh, so this is the, the current one has been compared to the Spanish flu, which happened in 1918, I think. So if this is a sort of once in a century thing, then I don't think it's going to change very much because people are quite happy to accept, you know, once in a century crisis. Actually, we've dealt, we've dealt with worse, we've dealt with world wars in between, you know, these kind of pandemics. Uh, but if there are, if these things are going to happen quite frequently, then it's a different ball game, uh, and, and it's not clear. To me. There's a lot of people who are claiming, screaming at the top of their lungs that this is going to be a regular occurrence. As an economist, I'm not a health expert. I haven't seen any convincing explanation of why we should expect these things to be happening with a high frequency. Pandemics have happened throughout history, uh, but it's not like people have only just been traveling. Uh, so, as I say, we'll have to wait and see on those points. Okay, very good. Thank you, Dr. Omar. Uh, Dr. Anita, if I can, if I can go back to what you were you were uh, explaining earlier and ask you a question based on that. So, if if uh, 
if it's necessary to have the sense of belonging in order to do these group endeavors, which are essential to society, and, and there's a certain degree of, of feeling that you belong to a group that's necessary, it's necessary to cross that threshold to achieve that sense of uh, communal belonging, then does technology raise that bar or lower that bar? How does technology affect that, that the way that we come together as a team? Thank you. That is an excellent question. Um, and uh, I'm going to actually kind of uh, summarize. I mean, uh, Mr. Nasser, I'm going to give you a, the word, the fancy word you're looking for. The buzzword is called sociomateriality. And it brings together the, I, I know I have them. I'm an academic. I have all the fancy words. Okay. And it brings together, uh, uh, Salim and Rafiq have said too, is that humans make the technology do what we want it to do. So in that way, technology doesn't drive change as much as we're given technology we have to use. And the fact that, yes, adoption has increased very rapidly. Um, it's not just geeks like me doing video conferences. It's everybody is doing a video conference now. Um, it's also that uh, we're learning. Um, we're still learning about how this all works, and we're still going to figure it out. So the so does does technology increase or decrease um, our belonging? Two answers to that, based on some research that I've, I've, I've done and have just seen. I think it does um, decrease. Uh, it, it's harder to have intuitivity in an online group. Okay. It, all right. So I'm just going to throw that back in. You know. So it, it is harder to have it online. Um, although I think that these video conferences really help because these video things, because we can see each other and we more importantly can be seen. If you think about how it is on a, on a uh, phone conference versus a video conference, you can, I mean, I don't, well, maybe you don't, but when I'm on a video, on an audio or phone meeting, I sometimes do other things while I'm there. It's a lot harder to do when I know I'm being seen by people. So I'm much more likely to be part of this group and part of um, the the belonging, the, the belonging is going to be met by this group. So that's that's the interesting thing, and I think we're making it happen. We need to be. Um, why did everybody jump onto video conferences after we all got put at home? Because we needed to see each other, and we needed to be seen. That's that example of socio materiality, um, where we make the technology do what we want to do. The other thing I think is really interesting is. As some research uh, graduate, a PhD student of mine just finished off, um, she just defended um, at the beginning of the pandemic. We're finding that um, online, we actually develop quicker relationships and more influence when we're looking at this tiny little screen um, than we do that if we're in a, in a big meeting. And, and so we're trying to figure out why that is. I mean, there's um, some research from the 1990s, it's called hyper-personal relationships. But they found that just through um, email and text that we would, um, you would overinterpret the cues that you get through an email and think someone was actually smarter and more attractive just through email. So, you know, that's, that's part of this thing. But I think we're seeing now with video, she found that leaders, bad leaders, had very strong influence on followers when they were online. Whereas they didn't have that influence at all when she was studying it face to face. The bad leaders didn't have much of an influence on people, but bad leaders or people who weren't very charismatic had a lot of influence on people when they were on the screen. And one idea I think is that 
we're staring at a somewhat small screen and it's taking a lot of our energy and focus to be part of this. And so it's in a room, we might be more distracted by some of the bigger, um, bigger things out there, but the more cognitions, more information flowing in. So I think that we have both the positive and the negative, right? It's going to happen. So it's harder to feel like we're part of the group. Although I did want to bring up, somebody was asking about that. It's shared goals. What you want to emphasize in any group to increase their intuitivity is get everybody to buy into the goals. You also want to increase their interaction with each other, both formal and informal. That's very important. And make sure everybody is seen, right? That you, you're not just seeing them, that they're all they're all seen by you. So I think that's the, the part of getting that intuitivity, which I think is a challenge online, maybe not so much video, but we have an opportunity to have a lot more influence on the people we're communicating with online, brand new research showing that, that that's what we, we may be seeing. So that helps. Okay, no, that's that's X. And that leads us where I wanna go. I wanna go looking into the future. I wanna turn this to Celine, but as I do that, I want I want to, to really get us to think about how, how do we look at the long-term? I know that's a very difficult thing to do. There's so many uncertainties. Uh, but as Salim said, uh, there's no going back. We will have a blended environment coming out of this. I'm personally of the belief that the people who are living through this now at a much younger age are going to develop a certain set of expectations based on it. Expectations about how we interact and how society should function. That will be different from the way I expect society to function or people of my age group. So what I want to do is turn it over to Salim and, and explore some of this question. Uh, what does... What does uh, what does what do internet interactions look like a year or two years from now? How do you at Google plan for this long-term future, Salim? So, yeah, thank you, Joshua. Again, uh, very very interesting question, and uh, you 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 partially answered it. But uh, let me, uh, you know, uh, there's a saying that high tech is only uh, something that was invented after you're born. So. So airplanes for me were not high tech, and, and you know you know the story, right? Uh, so for my kids, uh, you know this this technology, they're data natives. They 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 don't care. They they're gonna use technology in ways we never ever imagined. Doctor Anita referred to her uh, kids uh, interacting with with, uh, with, with intensely uh, uh, using uh, using video games, <clears throat> indeed. So the future is definitely like uh, uh, Dr. Anthony said: is uncharted territory, uncharted waters. We, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're Christopher Columbus sailing those waters, <laughs> and now going towards a brave new world, hoping to discover it. Uh, um, so, um, so I, I would say, uh, so, so, so we're not going to shape this. Actually, the digital natives will shape this, this future. And they will they will they will hold us by the hand and show us the way in 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 anyway. Uh, uh, However, what we can do, and I just want to go back a little bit to uh, what we do. Uh, we have, uh, I mean, with the knowledge that we have, with the experience that we have, we have a huge responsibility. And if there is one thing that definitely in the Middle East and North Africa region we should address to pave the way for 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 the youngsters to. To, to create those opportunities uh, is actually to look at uh, the digital policies. And I'm going to go back to what Mr. Nasser uh, Sheikh said. Uh, the role of the regulators is extremely important. And I, 
I really respect what they're trying to do. It's not easy. Put yourself in their shoes. You're sitting in the Middle East and there is GDPR in Europe and there is there is privacy shield coming from the US. And uh, the Far East has a totally different view when it comes to data privacy and data governance. So what do we do in the Middle East, in the Middle East and North African region? It, it, is, it is a construction site. It is, uh, and there are so, certain really important uh, matters that must be addressed. i just give you an example. Uh, Rafi, you're in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, intermediary liability, Safe Harbor created hundreds of thousands of jobs on YouTube. You know, like 500 hours uh, of, of content is uploaded on YouTube every minute. And this is was due to one stroke of legislation called intermediary liability, saying it's a platform and people uh, who, who, uh, that post and create can, can do that uh, freely and, and, uh, and gross follow. Uh, so um, digital policies are the Alexander's pin, you know, they are the one that will actually, uh, uh, if you remove them carefully, the baby will stop crying and will will, will grow and evolve. Uh, so, so one thing is look at digital policies, and I, 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 and the role of the regulators in the MENA region is very important. And uh, we should they should uh, we should all help them because nobody can get it absolutely right. Even uh, countries who are uh, highly uh, uh, advanced in this in this past, like the US or Europe, they still make we all still make mistakes. Us as high tech companies, we're learning every single day. So uh, that that's one thing that uh, will pave the way for the future, which is we all know is exciting, but I would not dare to say what will what will happen. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. I got held up on my microphone. So then, if I can turn back to Rafiq. Uh, Rafiq, addressing changes in consumer habits, uh, changes in the marketplace, changes in expectations in the marketplace. How do you plan for that? How do you anticipate that moving forward? And uh, and and where do you think uh, this is going to take us in terms of consumer habits and consumer demand another year, two years, five years from now? Rafiq? Well, I, I think Salim said it uh, already. You know, if you're not uh, uh, online uh, from a, uh, a provider uh, standpoint, you're going to lose out. And from a consumer standpoint, uh, uh, online is going to grow. Uh, we, we feel that even though the, the future is very murky at this point, uh, but we have some clarity that uh, uh, cloud services, uh, uh, data centers uh, are supporting them and uh, online tools in general are going to play a, a bigger and bigger role. Uh, the technology has been there. Uh, we're using it more now because we have to uh, use it more. And I want to get back to something Anita said about uh, also uh, technology and, and behavior. You know, te technology doesn't parachute down uh, magically, right? It's done by people. It's done by people. And, 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 uh, 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 and it's done sometimes by visionaries who imagine how things can be, who imagine how things can be. And they innovate and they produce new technologies uh, that uh, we welcome because we think it's a great idea. So, so uh, it, it does impact uh, uh, us. It, it, it doesn't come down magically. Uh, people 
uh, develop uh, uh, technology. Visionaries, visionaries see what things can can, uh, uh, can look like, and and the future. Who knows, uh, uh, Joshua? You know, there could be some kid today uh, uh, at home uh, 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 involved in some some uh, uh, some online game that can create uh, something that we haven't thought about that can change our behavior in the future. So future is unknown, but there are some areas of clarity, uh, uh, online everything, uh, uh, robotics, I think will play a, uh, a bigger role in terms of last mile delivery. Uh, we have the capability today to use ro robots for last, uh, 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 let's say uh, uh, 500 feet or 1000 feet or whatever, uh, however you wanna look at it, uh, uh, delivery. So instead of somebody coming to your door, a robot can show up uh, uh, on your door. Machine learning is going to play a, a, a much bigger uh, uh, role. Look for uh, uh, a lot more future smartphones uh, to come with augmented reality capability. And you know, speaking about uh, adoption rate increasing, you know, virtual reality has been around for uh, for a number of years, but we haven't really used it uh, a lot. Uh, well, you know, the, the more we stay at home, the less we travel the more we'll use uh, virtual reality. So I'll stop there. Uh, back to you, Joshua. Okay, Nasser, if I can ask Nasser a question, uh, Nasser Sheikh, my question is this, when we when we talk about government support to populations, their, their own populations during this crisis, most of what the newspapers and the media focus on are uh, uh, subsidies and handouts and uh, welfare and unemployment checks. Uh, the types of, of direct financial government support to the population to help to get them through the economic crisis. But from what I'm hearing from you, there's a lot of things in the UAE that have taken place where the government has supported the economy through technology or through regulatory and legal frameworks that enable technology. So talking about the government going paperless on certain times, certain days, as Salim was discussing, uh, and and what you were saying earlier, Nasser, about the government encouraging uh, uh, paperless transactions, uh, this does put UAE at the forefront to some extent uh, of the technological advance to support the economy. I'm asking you, is that a, a national advantage? And, and what, what, how can that be leveraged in the future? The, the types of resources that the UAE has developed with the government enabling how does that how can that further benefit the economy locally and how can that benefit partners and friends of the UAE abroad well uh, i mean before before going into that i mean just uh, a clarification to mr rafiq i mean i'm not i'm not undermining the importance of technology but i still don't think it will drive change but it will enable us to achieve you know, these fabulous ideas that the kid today, you know, a small kid today might have. And, you know, that, uh, so, I mean, importance of technology, I mean, no one is doubting that. But even, I mean, you know, you've been talking about, like, um, you know, the impact of technology. Um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the biggest retailers, for example, I mean, in, in the, um, you know, in the Middle East, um, uh, called Shelhu. You know, so so they they had to they had to go through the you know the you know what big groups um, you know have to I mean, letting go of people and so on. But the interesting the interesting sentence you know in in their um, in their press release was you know in 2020 they have achieved their online 
or e-commerce targets for 2024, you know? So COVID was a catalyst for that, okay? But still, I mean, if we if we talk about, you know, other areas like education, you know, um, education, when it comes to, um, you know, small, you know, young children and so on, we still want to, you know, for them to go back to school, okay? Uh, you know, a few parents might, choose, you know, the homeschooling option and their uh, technology will enable that, you know. But, um, you know, most parents, I mean, if you, if you talk to them today, I mean, they want to see their kids going back to school. I think, I think, no, I think we undermine, we undermine the, uh, you know, the impact and maybe Dr. Anita might, might, might know much more, uh, you know, on that. But we undermine the impact and, and I start to gauge it personally when I see, you know, when I visit my father, who you know I have not visited physically for about three months. You know, uh, so I think you know when it comes to impact, especially on the younger ones and the older generation. You know, uh, e people. I think we still do not know. You know the um, the psychological impact of that. You know, we're yet to know that in the you know in the days to come. This is just like you know being in the Vietnam War and then you know seeing a lot of movies about you know the aftermaths of Vietnam. So I think I think we I mean we we're, we're yet to know that. I mean when it comes I think when it comes when it comes to government I think I think one of the first <laughs> you know I mean the the most important thing was for us I mean for the regulator here I mean the telecom regulator to open up video conferencing. This enabled life. This enabled the society to interact you know, with the, with the lockdowns and so on. So I think, I mean, when it comes, uh, I mean, no, no single, no single country has a magic solution or a magic pill for that. Um, you know, support packages, you know, and, and, and it does not have to be monetary only, but support packages, whether it's legislation or, you know, various form of support will keep, you know, I, I think we will, we will still see support packages, uh, you know, being rolled out, and it will be a trial and error. You know, as you know, Dr. John said, you know, in the in the beginning, you know, this is uncharted grounds. You know, so I think it w there will be a lot of trial and error. I think, you know, to um, um, I mean, we will depend greatly on technology going forward. Um, I think many, but we have to differentiate be between some changes in our lives today that might um, that might enable us, you know, to go on with our uh, in our lives until we reach that point where there is a vaccine and we can go back to life as we knew it. But will it will we go back 100 percent to the to, to the old life that we had? No way. I don't think so. You know, some 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 changes will be there, but I don't I don't think we will know it yet. Okay. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Nasser. We're we're running out of time, but I still want to go through the rest of our speakers uh, one last time. Uh, Omar, Anita, and Salim. Doctor Omar, uh, if we can, if I can ask you the same thing. Moving forward, uh, what does society look like? a year or two from now in the Gulf, in the Middle East, in terms of government, uh, private sector interaction, public-private partnerships, uh, yes. anything else that you so, might like to explore. Uh, Omar, uh, what thoughts do you have? You said in, in two years' time in the Gulf, what, what are you asking about? 
what what does the public private partnership look like? How do governments support technological advance moving forward? And and what kinds of concerns do governments have to think about with this technological shift? Uh, so I think that so one major uh, one major problem that governments are going to face is that if the health problems uh, continue. Um, because there's no vaccine or these pandemics become more regular. Uh, I believe that uh, people in the region are potentially uh, less predisposed to uh, you know, long-term social distancing than people in other regions. Uh, and this could uh, create you know, a sustained public health problem. So to clarify, uh, the region is, you know, Islam is very important to people in this region uh, and it's the basis of the many of the social norms. Islam is pretty clear about how people should behave during the pandemic. It's very supportive of social distancing during the pandemic. However, at the same time, outside of the pandemic, uh, Islam you know, encourages people to be very sort of touchy-feely, to be very social, to gather, to meet people regularly. It's much the sort of opposite of what you expect from Japanese or, or culture, uh, or, some, or some of the Scandinavian cultures which involve less physical contact. Uh, and that's what people default to, and you're already seeing a lot of that behavioral fatigue across the Gulf, and Saudi Arabia in particular at the moment. So I think that a problem that the governments might face is that if they have to transition to a, to a culture where there's more social distancing, uh, they may find it very difficult to convince people in the Gulf to change because so much of their identity is tied to, uh, you know, being going to weddings, going to funerals, uh, present, giving condolences, going out with each other, going to messages. Uh, uh, and uh, it would be very, very distressing psychologically for people to have to surrender that. Uh, and no amount of technological wizardry will be able to uh, 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 you know, overcome that important cultural barrier. And Dr. Anita, if I can turn it over to you to ask uh, does this experience that we're all living through, does this create a, a social bond, at least among the younger generation? Does, does this uh, reliance on technology create an attachment to technology among a certain group of users? And, and how is that going to transition to the, the, the period after a vaccine is discovered and deployed? Thank you. Um, yes. So uh, I, um, I've, from a psychology and sociology standpoint, I'm not a big fan of um, all the different generations we have here. Like, you know, there's Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, blah, blah. I, I think that the research doesn't actually support that there's that huge variety. That said, I absolutely think we're going to see a cohort um, develop from this um, because it's a worldwide event. We have changed the way we interact. We have changed society. Um, and it's happening for more than just a little bit of time. Now, if, if this stopped at the end of the year and we get the vaccine, that's great. But if this lasts till 2022, I think we're going to see um, definitely a cohort of our, our young folks coming of age that are going to be uh, different. And I am not going to predict the future. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in 1994, when the World Wide Web started, I thought that was crazy and that no one would ever want to do that. 
Um, I thought we had email, we had file, file transfer protocol, we had Gopher, none of which you know, you know email, but you don't know any of that other stuff. So I'm going to say, um, I think what I've been hearing is, is, is true. Some things are going to stick. We are going to like online meetings like this. This is fantastic, right? That's going to be something we'll continue to do. But we're going to go back to get our, getting our, um, our, our interactions with each other physically because we need that too. So that's my prediction of the future. I'm not the one you want to predict it. No, that's great. I can remember 1994 and I can remember uh, my mom. I think my mom got jafe at AOL.com. And so I was furious and I immediately went out and got the hotmail, jafe at hotmail.com to compete with her. And it became a fierce competition ever after in back in the day. So Salim, do you have any final thoughts for us about moving forward? Yes. um, Well, thank you, Joshua. Again, you know, in in difficult times in crisis, what happens is that we saw it in 2008 in major conflicts, people turned to to governments for leadership. And, uh, and, you know, you, you talked about private public, uh, partnerships. Let me add a, a, a sort of buzzword, an extra one. So it's, it's, it will take, it's going to be a blended world we live in, but definitely it's going to be a, a, a public-private people partnership. So I'm adding another P. And that is empowered by the proper policies. So there are five Ps here for people who wants to, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the buzzwords. Uh, and but however, there is a sense of urgency. I, I, you know, there is a sense of urgency, and it has to be government-led. So this this partnership, private, uh, public people partnership, and I remind you that the people have a lot of power with the newfound, you know, like mobile and and other uh, uh, and and look at the uh, the informal economy in countries like Egypt or or elsewhere where the people have can actually make a huge difference if, if they are uh, 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 properly sort of embarked on, on, the, on this route. But there is a sense of urgency to act because, must say, people are, are in pain today. It's not easy. Uh, a lot of businesses are going uh, under, and we must act and act quickly, if I may. Okay. Joshua? Fantastic. I'm going to turn it over to my good friend and colleague, Mohammed Baharun. Um, and I just want to thank him and thank everyone at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Um, and I want to thank everyone at the, the Dubai Public Policy uh, Research Center uh, for everything that they've done to put this together. It has been outstanding. Mohammed, I'm going to turn it over to you to wrap things up, respond, conclude whatever you see fit to do. Uh, thank you very much, Josh. Uh, it's fortunate for all of you that I don't have time to comment on everything that has been said, even though I would love to. Uh, when we started discussing this, the idea was, is social distancing going to stick with us in the same way uh, uh, you know, a failed liquid bomb made us stick with uh, not taking liquids into an airplane? Or is this something that will go away in the same way we've seen things in Paris and London? People go back to the street as if this has never happened. Uh, I am uh, very, uh, I'm very much uh, in, in line with, with uh, Slim's uh, idea of, of, a, of a hybrid or a mixed uh, uh, world in which all of this will coexist. And I also agree with, with Anita that people being the social animals they are, 
will take that socialism or sociality with them into whatever means or whatever universe we're in. What we're seeing is a sort of a migration into this into the cyber world. But it's a migration that is happening until now like a cyber bedouism. People go to the digital sphere and then they come back and then they go. Uh, there might be a time when they will stick there. Uh, but I would uh, take her point on, on video gaming. And my kids do the same. My, my son would possibly now play more you know, football on, on a video game than actually in the, in the pitch. Uh, and there is a reason why the video gaming industry is about $150 uh, billion worth. However, the real sports industry is about $500 billion. So there is still of real people interaction going on and it will continue, uh, I think, uh, with us to a certain uh, uh, degree. Yes, digital societies will stay with us. However, societies are connected to states, to legislation, to governments, to legitimacy. So there are a number of ideas that will be affected as, as, as a, let's say, a, a ripple effect out of that change. Uh, to what extent we will need to change things, that is yet to be seen. But this is not the two, three years to come. I think this is for the next decade uh, uh, to see. Uh, but social distancing, our fear that it will affect globalization, it will raise the, the barriers in, in front of our doors, in front of our you know uh, airports against people who might come from outside and infect us. Uh, it's actually opened up a lot of windows and, and you know uh, to uh, other people that we're engaging with on a daily basis. I mean, uh, yesterday I had three webinars. So it, it just show you the extent uh, that those windows has been opened up to us. Uh, I, I would, again, say I would wish I had time to respond to a lot of your ideas. They've been fantastic. Uh, time is not enough, but uh, it would suffice to say thank you very much for an extremely engaging uh, discussion that did not answer questions, but created new ones, which I think is far more valuable, uh, at least in, in, in our line. Uh, John Duke Anthony, thank you very much for your support. Uh, and thank you for uh, initiating this. And uh, again, uh, thank you from uh, the Bi-Public Policy Research Center to all of you and uh, to your team.